1997, Dr. Rosaria Champagne was a tenured professor at Syracuse University. She was a committed feminist who had no real belief in God. There was one other aspect to her story that made her an unlikely convert. I, at the time that I started reading the Bible, and I, at the time that I started meeting with a Christian pastor, was in a lesbian relationship. And it wasn't just my first lesbian relationship. I, I fully embraced the lesbian community. This is Family Life Today. Our host is the president of Family Life, Dennis Rainey, and I'm Bob Lapine. Dr. Rosaria Champagne is now Dr. Rosaria Champagne Butterfield, a pastor's wife and a homeschooling mother of four adopted children. We'll hear her journey this week. Stay with us. Welcome to Family Life Today. Thanks for joining us. You remember me coming to you a few months ago and going, I have just read an amazing story, right? Right. And Barbara had read it as well. Yeah. And and this is, in fact, I, I would say I try to keep a running list of books that I read during the year. And I would say this is still at the top of my 2013 list, yeah. this book, because it's just, it, it's a great story. But the greatness of the story is the transformation that takes place in uh, in what we're going to hear about today. Yeah, it's not often you hear someone refer to their conversion to Christ as a train wreck. <laughs> but our guest on today's <laughs> broadcast describes it that way. Rosaria Butterfield joins us on Family Life Today. Rosaria, welcome to uh, to our broadcast. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here with you. I uh, I remember when Bob walked in and and I was getting it from him here at the office, and Barbara had read a review of your book, mm. and uh, she said, this is something you ought to do uh, radio on. Um, first of all, just to introduce you to our listeners, uh, Rosaria has been married to her husband, Kent, since 2001. Mm-hmm. They have four children. She is a former English professor mm-hmm. who was tenured mm-hmm. at Syracuse University, and that's kind of where we're going to go back to to start okay. this story. And uh, she has written a book called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, uh, subtitled An English Professor's Journey into the Christian Faith. And it's not unusual that English professors would come to Christ, but <laughs> your particular interest okay. and lifestyle back in the in the 90s, okay. what, that's what made your conversion unlikely, isn't it? Yes, definitely. So just the quick answer would be definitely that when I first started reading the Bible, I was reading the Bible because I was working on a post-tenure book, and it was a lesbian feminist critique of the Bible. And I was concerned about the rise of the religious right. I was threatened by the rise of the religious right. Uh, and I wanted to read this book that got all these people into trouble. And, and so that's where I started. But I guess, you know, because my life just seems sort of boring and normal to me. I find it sort of strange sometimes <laughs> that, that, that my journey seems so odd, but I guess that's... Well, let's just peel it back a little okay, bit. Let's we'll talk about, uh, you were a feminist, 
Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Explain what kind of a feminist. I mean, there's a spectrum. There's a spectrum, absolutely. Um, I I firmly believed that a feminist world and life view was a moral and ethical approach to living and, in fact, one that would get us out of so many of the problems that we were facing. When I looked at the world and I saw um, racism and homophobia and... um, and violence of all kinds, uh, you know, there is no way I could look at this world and say, oh, you know, obviously a loving God is in, is in control of it. And so I, like like many, many other people, rolled up my sleeves and said, okay, wh- how, how are we going to think our way out of it? So feminism to me was a very broad umbrella that allowed for the pursuit of individual rights within what I perceived to be a moral framework. And and you viewed Christians as dangerous, dangerous. Okay, dangerous anti-intellectual people. Yeah, Um, they weren't thinkers and they weren't readers. You 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 wrote about in your book, right? Right. That and that was you know that's not very nice. (laughs) Well, you could because I am a Christian right now, and you know I could be in charge of the of the of the self help group over Readers Anonymous. But (laughs) so you know it's not nice to say. But but that was my perception. My perception was you know as a university professor, I met a number of of Christians. And this is how these people came across. Now, whether they came across this way because I was, you know, deep in my sin or whether this is an accurate portrayal, I will let you all decide. But folks who would tell me that Jesus is the answer without caring to even hear about what some of my questions might be. Mm. You know, questions Mm -hmm. and answers go together. There's a logical relationship between the two. Um, or uh, when the Bible was invoked, it was often invoked in the same way that I might invoke a punctuation mark to end a conversation rather than deepen it. Well, that seemed pretty fear-driven to me. I didn't like it. And then finally, my biggest concern, though, is that the the fact that the Bible, uh, many, many people knew what the Bible said or, you know, believed they did, but nobody could tell me why it was true. And so it seemed to me just a strange mixture of superstition and patriarchy, um, where God the Father and the, the you know God of patriarchy came together to oppress you know, people like me. And as a university professor, one of my jobs was to be on a war against stupid. <laughs> and so this is where my war. <laughs> This is where my war took me, guys. <laughs> Your presupposition in life was if we can uh, liberate women and and eliminate patriarchy, yes, then we will solve many of the evils that we're facing in our world today. Right, absolutely. And, and back it up even further, my belief was that people were inherently good and that um, the right to individual choice making was an inherent uh, good, and there were um, material structures that stood between good people making good choices, and feminism combined with Marxism offered a way of unlocking that potential. That is what I believed. Somewhere in your life, your feminist Marxist presuppositions and your personal sexuality collided. Yes, they did. That's right. Um so, the big story for some people, which is not a big story for me, but that's okay. The big story for some people was that 
I, at the time that I started reading the Bible and I, at the time that I started meeting with a Christian pastor, was in a lesbian relationship. And it wasn't just my first lesbian relationship. Uh, I fully embraced the lesbian community. It, it sort of snuck up on me. I don't know how else to say it. I was not, uh, I know people who, who, who would say that when they were nine years old, they remember feeling attracted to people of the same sex. I do not remember that. I don't remember feeling attracted to anything, um, you know, but books and horses, you know, and so I went off to college. But when I went to college, I, I met my first boyfriend and that was a very heady experience. And I defined myself as heterosexual and presumed uh, that I would have a heterosexual life. Now, I was also a feminist. I was not keen on marriage. I did not think I would ever want to get married or, or have children or, you know, any of that. But I would have defined my sexuality as heterosexual. And then something started to just sneak up on me, and it was very subtle, but my relationships with women were more vital and more interesting, more dynamic, and more integrating. Well, you said they were, they were safer, too. And they were safer, yes. They were all of those things. And so my homoerotic or my sort of same-sex social preference, my homosociality morphed into homosexuality without really me missing a beat. I mean, I will tell you, it wasn't a grand event in my life. It was such a slow move. So that your first kiss was not a stunning event in your life? You didn't go, oh my. Well, yes, I think I think I did. I did go, oh my. Um, but it didn't erase you know, my heterosexual past. In other words, I had said to myself at that point when I met my first lesbian lover that I'm not going back. You know, this is a more moral choice. I am happier. I can be myself. I, I love being in a relationship with somebody who shares my, you know, truly my world and life view. And so I thought that I was there for life. And that's part of why you know, I wasn't a closeted lesbian. My my research program went from 19th century feminist studies and it moved into queer theory, which is a postmodern, post-structural extension of gay and lesbian studies. So I went on record as a queer theorist and um, and published articles in that vein. You... Um you scooted past a statement that I want to stop <laughs> okay, I didn't and just to... have you unpack a bit. You okay. said it was a more moral I did. choice. I know. We haven't mentioned that you had jettisoned your Catholic faith along the way. I did. And as you had moved into this lifestyle. Right. And what I want to know is how can this be a more moral faith right. when someone has a postmodern view Right, right. Which doesn't believe in absolutes. Right, that's right. Well, morality doesn't depend upon absolutes. Morality depends, um, especially within a postmodern context, on decency for the moment. And, um, you know, there are a number of things that you do not have to worry about in the lesbian community. For the most part, you do not have to worry about um, sexually transmitted diseases, and you do not have to worry about unplanned pregnancy. And that cleans up a whole lot of things for women. In fact, I remember being at a gay pride march once and there was a placard from the, the Christian community and after the Leviticus verse that everybody has to quote, of course, uh, the placard said, AIDS is God's curse on homosexuality. 
And then there was another placard, a responsive placard from the gay and lesbian community that said, if AIDS is God's curse on homosexuality, then lesbians must be God's chosen people. Because you can't get it. Not in your vanilla forms of lesbian sexuality. Mm. No. No, you're just not, you can't. You, you also just made the statement that some people kind of consider what we're talking about here to be at the crux of your story, but you don't. Right, I don't, I don't. But I now, I, I will entertain this. <laughs> you, you, know, you, are also... a, you are a feminist, <laughs> lesbian, queer theorist, <laughs> That's right. tenured professor, and you don't see that as being kind of integral to the whole idea of the transformation that's about oh, to happen? Oh, sure, your... sure, sure. It's integral. But see, the train wreck was about my heart. The train wreck was about starting out with this premise that this book, the Bible here, was filled with contradictions. It was an oppressive treatise against women and African Americans and everybody else in between. It was sentimental in some places. It was mythological in some places. But it was hardly, hardly, hardly the backdrop of a worldview that anybody could sustain. I went from believing that firmly to many years later, after reading it through many, many times, meeting with a pastor, meeting with various other members of this church community, to seeing this book as an organic whole whose canonicity was more solid than any other canonicity I had ever come up against, that had an organic revelation that started from Genesis, ended with revelation, that offered an invitation to me, me, you know, me of all people, right? That one, to enter into a covenant with a holy God who would reveal his will for my life and to whom I could share prayers that he would hear. That is the story. Okay, let's go back then to uh, a little men's group that came to Syracuse <laughs> University there at the, what's it called, the Orange Dome or something? Some, what, what, something what's it like called? Car- I think it's the Carrier Dome. Uh, well, or is that a different, uh, that might have been Ohio no, State. You know what, I was a good feminist. I didn't go to sports events. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> Whatever that arena on Whatever the other side of campus was. is. I just know right. that, that Syracuse is, is uh, yes, all about orange. Anyway, it is. It is. Uh, Promise Keepers yes, they did. came to town they and came held to town. a giant rally right. on the university. And right. you, being the proud feminist that you were, right. did what? Well, I, you know, I, I don't know that being the proud feminist, I was on a war against stupid. So what I did was I spent, I spent you know, 10 <laughs> minutes of my precious time and I knocked out an editorial to the newspaper and I presumed it would be a little dinky editorial and that nobody would ever see it. Well, they gave me a full page and it generated a great deal of rejoinders. Your editorial said Syracuse should have nothing to do with these patriarchs coming to our campus. It did, and it even called them a cult. And it, um, you know, I was just, I was just being myself, gentlemen. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> and and yet, I, re, you know, I got all kinds of responses. And, and you, you had two boxes or two two sections right. on your desk. Right, no you... boxes because I don't like a messy desk. Right, you got to okay. keep it on the ground. And that this was back in the days when you had Xerox boxes. I was using that expression, and someone said, "What's a, 
what's a Xerox box? <laughs> that, that dates me somewhat. Yeah. But I did. I had two Xerox boxes, one I kept for hate mail, one I kept for fan mail. And then this one letter came in, and it wasn't hate mail, and it wasn't fan mail, and I, um, I had to figure out what to do with it. And the first thing you did with it was wad it up and throw it in the trash. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I I don't think I wadded it up because it was going to go in the recycling bin because I was a good feminist. It was not going to go in the trash. Come on, John. So you put it in the recycling bin. Work with me. What did this letter that didn't fit either box say? Um, well, it was it was kind and it was gentle, and yet it was also clearly written from a Christian world and life view. It was from Ken Smith, who's my dear friend, and became my first pastor. And um, but at that time, he was just this 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 dude who wrote me a letter, and um, and it it asked me some basic questions. It asked me if I had read the Bible. It asked me what I believed about gender. I mean, Ken identified his desire to help men be men in this letter. So I think that was the part that was part of the knee jerkiness. Um, but he also asked me questions that were that were genuine questions and he wasn't answering those questions for me. And I admired that. I really liked that. I was also a, a good user at the time and I admired the fact that here was somebody who knew a lot about the Bible. And I was going to need to read the Bible for my new research project. And I thought, well, hmm you know, I'll bet this is somebody who could help me with my research. And so at the bottom of the letter, Ken asked me to call him back. And um, and so I did. I thought that these were questions that needed to be aired on the phone. And, and we had such a, a lively conversation on the phone that he invited me to come to his house for dinner. And um, sometimes people don't know this, but the gay and lesbian community is also a community quite given to hospitality, and I and I tell people this that I um, I'm a pastor's wife now, and and I believe strongly that hospitality is just the ground zero of the Christian life and of evangelism and everything else um, that we do apart from the the formal worship of God. But I tell people that I honed my hospitality gifts in my former queer community, and so when Ken invited me to have dinner with him, that seemed really like a great idea. Uh, that I, he he already seemed like my kind of people. But you came with a little bit of a chip on your shoulder, a bottle of wine under your arm, right? Well, but that was normal. I didn't realize that. <laughs> See, now I'm a teetotaler, but then I wasn't. <laughs> but describe uh, your yeah. haircut. You said I did. I had a butch haircut. Yeah, yeah, um, and and yes, and I had the the bumper stickers. I mean, I did realize that when I pulled my car into his driveway. You know what was the. What, what was, were the neighbors going to think? And you, know, you were kind of proud of the fact that the neighbors might be a little well, miffed. Well, you know what? But here's what I discovered in Ken's house. That door was always opening and closing. And people from all walks of life, I met them at that table. I did not meet Christians who shared a narrowly bounded, priggish worldview. That is not what I met. I met people who could talk openly about sexuality and politics and did not drop down dead in the process. And you know what? When when I first read your book, one of the things I got most excited about was the model of Ken Smith. Oh, yes, absolutely. I just, I was high-fiving and going, yeah. we need to read this, all of us, right. to understand, Right. here's how you do this. Here's right. how you engage somebody who doesn't think and believe like you do. That's yeah. right. But you have to understand, that was normal for Ken. 
You know, Ken didn't say, oh, great, we're going to have the lesbian over for dinner. Let's be sure to, you know, share the gospel as soon as she walks through the door or, you know, let's, he, this was normal for Ken. Ken cares about the heart. In fact, I found Ken's business card in one of the books I was looking at for some writing that I'm doing. And the business card said, you know, when you're ready to talk about God, give me a call. And that's what the business card says. It's it's just, that's how Ken was. It's how Ken is. There's a book out right now that many people are reading. I love it. I'm reading it. I'm getting some of my neighbors to read it. It's called The Art of Neighboring. Mm. Before that book, there was Ken Smith. Mm. And he and Floy, his wife, his beautiful, wonderful wife, who is my first spiritual mother, that's what they did. And so I became a regular at Ken's house, and Ken and Floy became a regular at my house. And they did two startling things the first time I had dinner at their house, two things that were against the um, the, the rule book uh, that I believed all Christians followed. Uh, they did not share the gospel with me, and they did not invite me to church. But at the end of our dinner, when Ken extended his hand and I closed mine in it, and he said, we're neighbors. Neighbors should be friends. I found myself being in complete agreement with Mm. Ken. Mm. Also, Ken had a way of asking questions, and he had an authority. You know, I had been in a queer community. I had been in a feminist community. In my community, women ran the show. I had not encountered a man like Ken in my whole life, I found that his gentle authority, that when he asked me a question, in fact, I left his house that night and I thought, I cannot believe you said those things, Rosaria. Why did you give him all that material? I found myself actually answering his questions honestly instead of answering with the you know, the the program. The that, party line. The party uh-huh. line, exactly. Your defenses were down because he did a good job of loving you. Yeah, that's right. And you know what? It started with the prayer. You know, I had heard plenty of prayers before Planned Parenthood and gay pride marches. You know, the, the prayers that the crumbs are there for the heathen like me to hear. I had heard, you know, I could have written, you know, there's a hermeneutic, right? I'm an English professor. <laughs> I love to study different art forms. There's an art form to that prayer. That was not Ken's prayer. It was vulnerable and honest. And and he prayed to a God who is not a God I had ever been introduced to. And one of the things Ken asked me that night, and I still cannot believe I actually answered him honestly. I mean, it was just so, it was so out of character for me. But he asked me, he said, well, what do you really believe? I mean, do you really, you know, you just really don't believe in anything? Like, what do you really believe? And I said, I don't know what I believe. I was raised Catholic and, uh, you know, I'm now a Unitarian and I don't really know what I believe, which was true, but not anything I had said out loud. You know, your story is a great reminder, I think, to each of us who are followers of Jesus Christ that um, we need to be using our homes mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, to be more hospitable right. and to reach out with kindness. Right. But as we do that, maybe instead of providing the answers to people, instead, as he did with you, mm-hmm. ask a few questions mm-hmm. to find out mm-hmm. 
where the other person really is. Right. And what do they believe right. and not believe. Right. And I think sometimes we are so zealous on behalf of the truth. We want to mm-hmm. we want to get to the bottom line. That's right. And if you're going to do that in an effective way, you first of all have to find out where you deliver the bottom line. And That's the best right. way to do that is by asking some great questions. Okay. Well, and the story's not over yet. And in fact, this week, we're going to hear more of this conversation. But you've you've really shared your journey in the book you've written called Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And we've got copies of the book in our Family Life Today Resource Center. Go online at familylifetoday.com for more information about how to get a copy of the book, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, Again, the website is familylifetoday.com. You can also order by calling 1-800-FL-TODAY, 1-800-358-6329. That's 1-800-F as in family, L as in life, and then the word today. And we hope you can join us back again tomorrow when we'll continue our conversation with Rosaria Butterfield. We're going to hear how she wound up Uh, in a local church hearing the gospel and responding to what she heard. I hope you can tune in for that. I want to thank our engineer today, Keith Lynch, and our entire broadcast production team. On behalf of our host, Dennis Rainey, I'm Bob Lapine. We will see you back next time for another edition of Family Life Today. Family Life Today is a production of Family Life of Little Rock, Arkansas. Help for today, hope for tomorrow.